This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenal. Back in May of 1963, everywhere outside of the United Kingdom in Ireland got their first look at the movie adaptation of James Bond in the film Dr. No. Ian Fleming created the dashing British spy character back in 1953 with the first Bond novel, Casino Royale. When producers Harry Salt and Albert Broccoli secured the rights, they partnered up with United Artists to make the film. British director Terence Young was brought in to helm the film, and they began a process of casting for the now-iconic part. Gary Grant was the first choice, but when he would only agree to sign a one-movie contract, they decided to keep searching. Other actors considered inc- included Patrick McGowan, David Neven, who would later play Bond in the spoof Casino Royale in 1967, the only unofficial 007 movie, and Roger Moore, who was considered for the part and never offered it until he was eventually cast as the spy in 1972 film Live and Let Die. Eventually, 31-year-old Sean Connery was cast and became a star in the process. The film was shot on a modest budget, but became a worldwide smash hit, and now the franchise has spawned 25 movies so far, with the recent run by Daniel Craig just finishing last year with No Time to Die. We're going to look back at the seminal film that is celebrating its 60th birthday this month. Joining me to talk about Dr. No, the Bond franchise that followed, and the future of the character is Matthew Simpson. We all know as one half of the Awesome Friday podcast, and in my estimation, the closest thing I know to an expert on the series. Welcome back, Matthew. How are you? I'm well. I'm a little nervous now that you're describing me as an expert, Um, but I'm well. Thank you for having me. I said the closest thing to an expert, so, you know, not not really an expert, but close it. Oh, yeah. I mean, pretty... Pretty pretty far away, really. <laughs> Although <laughs> I I did rewatch most of these movies just uh, last year, the year before, I guess during COVID, I rewatched uh, everything from this movie all the way up to um, License to Kill. So I, I at least have some recent knowledge of the franchise. See, then you're a bit of an expert then. Um, and you know, I decided to go with you and not your co-host Simon, even though he is British. I don't know what his thoughts are on the franchise. Uh, he, um, you know, he, as with many things, has many thoughts, and I will leave it to him to explain. He isn't known as Admiral Hot, Hot Takes for no reason. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Although I'm, I think, honestly, I'd have to talk to him, but I'm pretty sure that our thoughts on Bond line up in many ways. So, um, and yeah, it's the nice thing about James Bond is that there are so many films in the franchise that span such a long period of time and such a wide variety of like styles and tones at this point that there's basically something for everybody. So I think it's I think it's a great franchise in that way. Yeah, and I think that's something that we're definitely going to kind of get into. Um, I guess before we start talking about Dr. No specifically, I'd love to know what was your history with the Bond franchise? Do you remember what was the first Bond film you watched? Did you grow up to instantly love them? Have you always been a fan? Things like that. Uh, So I could not tell you what the first Bond film I watched was, but I was quite young for sure. Um, But what I can tell you is that I grew up watching them a little bit. So when I was uh, a kid uh, in my like early, early teens, like I guess like 12, 13, we moved and we lived in a small town, but we moved into a house and my dad arranged for us. Um, we live in Canada. I don't know if you know this, but technically speaking, uh, sorry, dad for outing you on this, but like if you, if you receive, uh, or at least at the time, if you receive us TV signals, that's actually technically illegal. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. Because like, obviously if you try to watch something, if you receive 
Like the that stuff's all been broadcast at the, at the time it was satellite. It'll be build, building up to the fact that we had a ten foot satellite dish, oh. and uh, all those signals are coming down. But if you receive them, you're you're like breaking the rules because like if you watch something on HBO, but then like I don't know, like CBC or whoever has the actual rights to distribute it in Canada, then you're you're breaking the rules. <laughs> But if you set up a, so they can't sell it to you, but what you can do is buy a 10 foot satellite dish and open a PO box just over the border and then they can sell it to you just fine. So, uh, so we grew up with, uh, all these American channels, uh, including HBO, but more significantly with TBS and TBS, uh, seemed to do a bond marathon, like what felt like every month. <laughs> And they mostly showed the old ones. And I have very, like, distinct memories of watching, like, all, very specifically, all of Roger Moore's movies multiple times when I was a teenager. Uh, And obviously older ones and some of the newer ones, too. I remember not really seeing much of Timothy Dalton because I guess the, like, TV rights hadn't been a thing yet. This is in the early 90s and his movies were in the late 80s. Um, But I definitely saw, like every Roger Moore film and I'm pretty sure I saw every Sean Connery film and I'm pretty sure I saw the other sort of unofficial one, never say never again, a bunch of times as well. Um, uh, all when I was a teenager, all because we had this gray market, uh, 10, 10 foot satellite. Well, we had a 10 foot satellite dish in gray market, American TV. That's really cool. I, I did not know that. Uh, I obviously got TBS too, but I'm guessing that was a, legal way of doing it i don't know i didn't have a 10-foot satellite on my tv with a p.o box in the united states so well you uh, live close enough to the states like i know that when you live in a place like say um windsor ontario which is like like a stone's throw from detroit like you can't help but like roam on your cell phone sometimes and like the the tv signals are just flying through the air right so um if you just happen to pick them up they can't stop you um, they just can't sell it to you. That's where it becomes a problem. Um, and that's why you need to have a billing address in the States. <laughs> okay. Uh, as far as my history goes, I didn't grow up a Bond fan, really. I, I remember watching probably The World Is Not Enough. I definitely remember watching Die Another Day when it came out. Um, obviously, playing GoldenEye on N64 was uh, the, the coolest game to, to play. That's and true. I- that was... Probably a f- like the franchise title for the N sixty four, right? Like that mm-hmm. and the uh, that and uh, the first Zelda game that was on it, uh, mm-hmm. Ring of Time. Those are probably the big two, right? Yep, yep. Those and you know, obviously Mario Kart and, and stuff like that. But yeah, those were some of the biggest games at the time, and that was always a fun one to play whenever you had a, a group of friends around. Um, and obviously, I've I've watched all the Daniel Craig ones as they were coming out. Uh, but I never really seen any of the original ones. I had a ex-girlfriend and she had grown up also with kind of the, the classic ones. And so I think she had like, cause at the time they were, they started re-releasing the movies in box sets by actor, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, became pretty popular. And I think she had a couple of them. So I started watching a bunch of them. And according to Letterboxd, I have seen 15 of the 25 films which uh, definitely seems surprising because I probably could only accurately describe um, pre-Brosnan a small handful of them. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah. I should say the other thing that happened to me when I was a kid is when I was 16, so 1997. Yeah, I was 16 in 97. 
which coincidentally was the year that Tomorrow Never Dies came out, which is the second Pierce Brosnan James Bond. I started working at our local small town movie theater, so I definitely saw the Brosnan ones as they came out from that point forward. In fact, I assembled the film and projected it uh, for that one, and The World Is Not Enough. And I think Die Another Day might have actually been one of my last last ones that I did. I'm not sure if that was 2001 or 2002. That's really cool. As, a, as an aside, my biggest regret as a teenager was failing to get a job at my uh, local blockbuster and local movie theaters because that just seemed like the coolest job in the world for like a 16, 17-year-old to have. And for some reason, I uh, never even got an interview, no matter how many times I submitted a resume. I mean, if you're a movie nerd, it's a great place to be because yeah. I don't know how it works today. I haven't been a, pro- I haven't been a projectionist since I was a teenager. And, um, uh, I know it's all, a lot of it's digital today, but when I was working, we had a super old projector and they would ship the, the film. It would come on, you know, 15 minute reels and you'd have to assemble them into one film. And then I had to watch the movie because I had to make sure that I did it right on the first night. Yeah. <laughs> so I like, part of my job was to sit there on Friday nights and watch movies. It was great. That's really cool. Did I, I know employees of movie theaters would get to watch movies for free, usually either before or after their shifts, but would you ever get together as like uh, a staff and be able to watch a movie like before it comes out, like the day before it's, it airs or something like that? It opens? So we lived in a small enough town that I think if we had been physically able to do that, we probably would have because the woman who owned the theater at the time was my neighbor. So that's how I got the job. Um but um, but what happened was, is the way they shipped them to us, I lived in a very small place that also happened to be an island. So oftentimes we were re- receiving the print on Friday morning and I was assembling it on Friday afternoon to show it on Friday night. So we unfortunately did not get to do that. But what I did have is a lot of friends who like coming to the movies. So basically, not every Friday, but basically a lot of Fridays, like my entire friend group would come to the movies and watch them with me. That's that's really cool. I I definitely you know gonna take this conversation off podcast and maybe the next time we're hanging out, I'm definitely gonna uh, get you to regale me with uh, your movie theater projectionist days. Yeah, I mean honestly, it's not it's not that interesting because mostly it's just I got to watch a lot of movies when I was a teenager. Between that and having HBO when I was a teenager, I watched a lot of movies. Um, uh, and I do have somewhere at my dad's house. I still have like every time there was a movie poster. Cause we got posters with the prints. So yeah. every, every time we got movie posters, uh, I would just take them as well. And I have a box full of movie posters somewhere at my dad's house. I don't know if there's any, I don't know if there's any good ones, but there's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's still, that's, that's still incredibly cool. And I think as you were saying, working at a, a video store or in a movie theater is basically every movie nerd sort of uh, dream occupation when they're a young person, because it's essentially getting to go to film school for free. Um, yeah. So and, very cool, nonetheless. And to bring it back around, one of the things I, I just just remembered is I, uh, one of the posters that was actually on the wall of my bedroom uh, from 1997 and until I think my dad repainted it like two years ago uh, was a poster for Tomorrow Never Dies. So I had James Bond on my wall when I was a kid, too. That's really cool. All yeah. right. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Dr. No. You know, I gave a little bit of an introduction there talking about a very, very condensed history. But obviously, if, if people want to learn more about James Bond, the whole 
Ian Fleming uh, saga of of him creating the character and then trying to bring it to the big screen and the rights shifting around and trying to find who would be the right actor. And there was a bit of a stunt casting going on and all this sort of stuff was all very interesting and, and people could definitely learn more about it. But we're going to kind of talk, start the first half of this episode, just talking and reminiscing about Dr. No. And then we're going to kind of talk about the franchise as a whole. Um, so I think, First off, I, I got to say, I have apparently watched Dr. No before, yet I could not remember a single scene from this movie watching it. And it's not like I would have watched it when I was a young kid, as I said, because I didn't grow up with them. I probably saw it maybe anywhere between 10 and 12 years ago, because that's what it lines up of when I was with my ex-girlfriend. Uh, and that's when I would have watched it. And for some reason, I can't remember a movie that I watched a decade ago, which is absolutely shocking to me. I mean, not if it's not that memorable. I mean, I was going to say, it's not so much that it's not a good movie, because I do think it's a good movie. But what I will say is that, like, the James Bond films follow a pretty specific pattern that yes. they are doing over and over and over again. Like, you know, there's a bad guy, he has a plan to destroy the world, and he wants a lot of money just to to make him stop. And, like, basically, if you watch Austin Powers, you have watched, like, two-thirds of the James Bond movies. Especially, yes. especially the Connery ones, because they very openly, like, lovingly mock the Connery ones. Yeah, to the point where I think because of the Powers movies, they had to completely... You know, obviously there were other things going on at the time with like the Jason Bourne movies, but clearly after Brosnan before Craig, uh, they decided they had to completely change the tone of the movies because Austin Powers was the best James Bond movie since you know Doctor No, basically because they're all yeah. urban copy uh, mockery of each other afterwards, even if they were done in earnest and not done intentionally campy. That's how they came out. Yeah, although I would say having, uh, again, so you haven't watched a lot of them, uh, or you've watched like 15 out of the 25, I think there is now. Yes. So I would say that actually, if when you watch them, especially if you watch them in order, and the way I was able to do that is that uh, Simon, my co-host, actually owns that um, box set that came out a oh, couple years ago. One, the, yeah, it was like the, the first, uh, like 23 or 22 of them, it, which was a yeah. weird one movies i i hate when box sets do that by the way in the middle of a franchise release a box set yeah i hate Wait, it too um yeah uh but so he had the one he had the box set that has everything um from dr no i think it has everything up to skyfall in it um yeah uh but anyway uh i would say actually the biggest tonal shift is actually between um a View to a Kill, which is Roger Moore's last one, and The Living Daylights, which is Timothy Dalton's first one. And that was clearly the first time where they were like, okay, we need to, like, bring this up to date somehow. Like, <laughs> we need to... Because, like, Roger Moore's last one, which is in 1985, very much feels like a continuation of 70s Bond. And then uh, Living Daylights, which is in 1987, it's only two years later, like they might as well have put like a billboard on the, on the top of the screen that says, we know it's the 1980s now <laughs> because the, like everything changed. The tone changes, all the technology changes, all the characterizations change. Like it's, it's probably the single biggest like tonal reset in the franchise. 
Yeah, uh, I've never seen. I haven't seen either of the Dalton films. I've seen all the Brosnan, all the Craig, uh, two of the Roger Moore films, and then like uh, about half of the Connery ones. So no Lazenby, which obviously was only one. Uh, it's a shame because Lazenby's film is actually quite good, uh, and so I think are both of. Um, I think both of Bros- uh, Dalton's are good too. Actually, I think. I don't know if I'm in the mi- I don't know if I'm in the minority on this, but I think the Living Daylights is the better of the two. Um, but they're both good. The Bond franchise sort of reminds me a little bit like Saturday Night Live, where uh, depending on who your favorite Bond is, says what era you grew up in. For the most part, obviously there is some exceptions because you know with, with Saturday Night Live, everyone has their favorite cast, and that usually is indicative of when you're you know just coming of age as a young adult. And I feel like James Bond is sort of similar. You know, you, you have the really old school people who are like, oh, you know, it's only Sean Connery, and then the people that were you know a little bit later uh, grew up with Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, things like that. I think the one exception is no one really says Pierce Brosnan is their favorite Bond. <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, I would normally agree with that, but I'm pretty sure your regular co-host Rachel, I'm pretty sure, isn't brought. She did. Her. She did want to say, yeah, because that's yeah. something we were originally going to do. Is yeah, yeah. Um, and I think lots of people who grew up in the '90s, uh, like honestly, probably speaking, the main reason that that uh, Brosnan isn't my favorite because he was on the big screen while I was, you know, learning to love movies. Uh, it's just that again. I watched so many Roger Moore ones on TV at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, and I have a special nostalgia. I like Roger Moore is unironically my favorite James Bond. And uh, I know that's to some people that's sacrilege, but I mean, there's a reason he lasted seven movies uh, and it's because he's great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, let, let's get in a little bit more to, to Dr. No. And I think the one thing that really stood out for me in watching this, it's sort of looking at it as a standalone movie, not as the movie that's going to spawn 24 installments of a franchise, plus a few unofficial ones and, and many spoofs. It sort of reminds me of why I really liked the Batman from last year is that James Bond really feels like a detective. You know, he does, he, he, he thinks like a detective. He, you know, he places things uh, like doing, you know, uh, a strand of hair across his closet door, um, stuff like that. And then when he knows that his uh, room has been tampered with, his hotel room has been tampered with, he goes to make himself uh, a drink and he he takes a lid off the, the vodka bottle, but realizes that this vodka bottle was already open and he thinks twice about it and decides to grab a fresh one and opens that up. And it's all those little touches like that throughout the film that we see the whole time that sort of you, you realize why people probably fell in love with this movie so much because he's actually a really smart character in this film. Something that, you know, we, we later see him becoming someone that uses his muscles or guns to get out of situation. But here it really is his brains to uh, outwit his enemies. Yeah. I mean, the, I th- one of the things I really like about this one and the next one, to be fair um, from Russia with love is that they are, they're very much, spy films rather kind of rather than being what we sort of understand a James Bond film to be like um, that doesn't really happen until Goldfinger, um, which is the third one. Um, but these ones are so like, like there's so much where he's just existing and, and sort of living by his wits. Uh, you can tell they didn't have a ton of money. This one only had a budget of a, about a million dollars. Um, and so there's not a lot of big action set pieces. There's tons of shots of like 
that classic movie thing where they do they're driving a car, but behind them is clearly a projector. Yeah. Um, and lots of like, you know, at one point there's a bad guy's car that tumbles off a cliff and it's, it's <laughs> clearly a real car, but there's also clearly like no engine in it. And like the, sm- the smallest amount of like gasoline in it to make it be on fire. Like it's not spectacular at all. Um, but I sort of love that about it. I love like in, in a lot of ways, I think people who like the Craig run and especially like Casino Royale will, would probably really connect with this one if they haven't seen it because it's a lot more grounded as a result. Yeah, that was something I noticed as well, is that you could see a, a sort of a direct through line from how they decided to uh, reboot the, the franchise of dialing back, you know, the gadgets, the gimmicks, all this sort of stuff, and just have it more of a straightforward spy film really does connect to to Dr. No and, and what they're trying to do. Obviously, you know, Craig as Bond is much more about um, his physical imposement. And, you know, there's a there's a pretty funny fight scene early on in the movie when uh, when James Bond first gets to Jamaica and he realizes that his uh, his chauffeur, his chauffeur, uh, government chauffeur is not actually a government chauffeur and instead an assassin sent to kill him. And, you know, when they uh, are on the side of the road and they have a fight, he basically does the like judo chop to flip him over on his back thing, which is absolutely ridiculous, uh, which is sort of almost keeping with the early 1960s vibe of filmmaking. So the stuff that you mentioned, the, the rear projection camera shot, the the car slowly tumbling down a hill and exploding into a giant ball of fire. Uh, you know, the ridiculous fight scenes where, you know, he does like, he's able to swing the bad guy onto his back and completely incapacitate him, that sort of stuff, which are hallmarks of early 60s, late 50s cinema, but still the very bare bones, basic as far as you know, we're not having a uh, a pocket helicopter sort of thing that became a, a mainstay in later films. Yeah, for sure. And it's also like I also love it because um, you're talking about with like the fight scenes is sort of very much of its time. It was very much we were still sort of okay with our heroes' um, ability to fight. What am I trying to say? Our it used to be that we were okay in in the West with the idea that our fighting skills were all martial and no art. and uh this is this film is a very good example of that because that like you know oh block chop and like flip the guy was about as complicated as it ever gets in this film (laughs) uh and there's a lot of just like very clearly lined up like a block and single punch and it's you know that that today would be like a five minute fight scene right? Like the first assassin would be the first big set piece and they'd be fighting like on top of the car or on a train or something. And we just, we're not there yet with this franchise. And I kind of love that about it. Mm -hmm. We, uh, we also get some, some things in this movie that, that clearly start to set the franchise up. Obviously they're, you know, pulling them directly from the, the source material, but uh, stuff like how the, the most of the action takes place in Jamaica, which was Ian Fleming's favorite uh, place to be. He had a home there. He lived there for a lot of his uh, adult, adult life when he was writing a post-military career. And I know James Bond has, you know, the movies have, frequently featured Jamaica as a location, including the most recent one, No Time to Die. You know, a good portion of the movie takes place in Jamaica as well. So it's kind of nice to see that. And then things like um, early on when, uh, you know, we see James Bond introducing the casino and he goes to get a drink and a server brings him a drink and he goes, a martini, just the way you asked, mixed, not shaken. 
Mm-hmm. Or sorry, he says mixed, not stirred, is uh, the way yep. he does it. Obviously, that later, it's, they, they do say later in the movie, shaken, not stirred, in a bit of a different way that we're used to. Um, but it was just sort of funny that we get this hallmark very early on, and they're clearly setting the template of who is this James Bond character? What are What's their backstory? What are their attributes? Things like that. Uh, so it's nice that we sort of can sort of see the inklings and the seedlings of of how the character will grow. Yeah, like very much all the seeds are there. Um, like I say, I think what we understand a James Bond film to be doesn't really happen until Goldfinger, which incidentally was also the one that like blew the franchise wide open. Um, like the first one was successful. This one was, this one was successful. Um, uh, it made about $60 million uh, at the box office. Which today is like four fifty, um, and then for Marshall with Love, which is uh, spoiler alert, my favorite Connery Bond, made about eighty million dollars, which is about five fifty, and Goldfinger made hundred and twenty-five million dollars, which is about eight fifty uh, in today's money. So, um, and that was the one that really cemented the like um, the completely over the top bad guy because Doctor No is fairly reserved. as Mm -hmm. as bond villains go um and the plan the plan is like kind of makes sense as opposed to you know goldfingers is a little more outlandish uh and goldfingers the one where it became really gadget heavy like from russia with love has a couple of gadgets but they're very practical uh and then goldfinger he has a couple of their like turn out to be incredibly specific to some over-the-top situation and there's you know and there's a car that turns into a plane and a bunch of other stuff. Um, See, I I really, you can really tell that this is the start of the franchise. um, And, but it is just the the seed of it. And I, I, again, I really love how strangely grounded it feels compared to the rest of the, well, all of them really, it's probably the most grounded film of the whole franchise. Yeah. I, uh, I appreciate it. The, the intro that we get to the movie, you know, obviously a, a big part of the James Bond franchise is, is the introduction song where we get very stylized title cards and the credits and all that sort of stuff. Where now it's basically what, who's the biggest name musician in the world that we can get to, to do the title song for Dr. No, it is the original Bond theme that has become, you know, the motif heard throughout the entire franchise, but uh, it's, it's very quaint, you know, it looks like uh, a Saul Bass introduction, like title sequence. If anyone has seen a Saul Bass title sequence, you know exactly what I'm talking about for the first half. And then it sort of switches to almost like an Andy Warhol, like silhouette, you know, of uh, girls dancing in silhouettes, but it's clearly done in an animated style, not in the way that we know today where it's, you know, more of an actual filmed uh, sequence. But it was, mm. it, I, I thought it really worked with the movie. You know, it, it, it's more stripped back compared to the action set pieces and the gadgets and all the stuff that we, we've talked about already. But the title sequence really works for this movie, and it's such an iconic song. It's nice that we get to hear like the full extended version, not just like the you know the couple note motif anytime like James Bond appears on the screen for the first time, or when we get the villain introduced, or, or stuff like that. So I really like the, the title sequence. What, what are your thoughts on it as a whole? I mean, same same thing as before. I really I'm with you. I, I think it really works for the movie. I think it really works again as like a, a sort of seed of the franchise. You can really tell that they. Um, 
they were like, oh, people like the titles, so we're going to do that over and over and over again. Um, and it becomes like a hallmark of the series. Like, it's kind of amazing how how much of this film is already James Bond, as we know him, even mm-hmm. though it's not fully James Bond as we sort of understand him, you know? Um, and yeah, the Maurice Binder-designed uh, title cards are, are pretty incredible. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that sort of style, uh, and that sort of mid-century modern style, I think we call it now. Um, uh, and I really, I think it's a really great example of that too. And it's it's also like, yeah, they used, you know, actual filming techniques to, to make it happen. And I like that. And I like that they, it evolves over time. I keep talking about the whole franchise. We're supposed to be talking about Dr. No, <laughs> but uh, it's just such an interesting, such an interesting thing because it's, it's the place where it all began. And I, I really... I really like how that influence is carried forward. It's uh, it's almost hard to talk about without also comparing it to the rest of it because you are, you're either looking at it as uh, what's to come later on or bringing it, stripping it back of like taking everything back to the basics. So it's sort of, sort of interesting where you can't really just talk about the movie on its own. Yeah. It's also interesting. I mean, I don't know how far you want to jump into this, but you know, for all the hallmarks that are, are there, there's several that aren't like this movie. Um, does have a major boothroid, but it's not Desmond Llewellyn, and he only has one scene. And again, no gadgets um, and things like that. There's plenty of stuff that is not yet there. And again, it, just to reiterate, I really love how more, again, how more grounded it feels as a result. But uh, we were talking about the titles, and the short version of what I'm trying to say is that the titles are beautiful, and the song is great. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. What uh, what are your thoughts on Honey Rider as the first uh, Bond girl, big Bond girl, playing um, b- played by Ursula Andress? Uh I mean, she Ursula Andress is gorgeous, um, and that scene, that her first scene where she's coming out of the water wearing that bikini, is iconic for a dozen different reasons, and. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's interesting. The one thing that is interesting is that like, this is also a very, a movie that's very much of the sixties. So she's kind of dumb and kind of ditzy in a way that like Bond girls don't really get sort of like smart and capable until much later in the franchise, probably too late in the franchise if we're being honest about it. But, uh, she's just sort of from that point on, she's just sort of a bystander who's like, just happens to be swept along for the ride. Um, as opposed to later films where Bond girls tend to be like enemy assassins or, you know, agents of allied nations or that kind of thing. Um, but I think she very much, I think Ursula Andress very much understood the assignment. I think she plays it really, really, I think she's giving the, the director exactly what he's asking for is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting for sure of of how different she is as a Bond girl compared to, you know, pick any name out of a hat. Uh, because she really is someone that they, they actually just stumble upon. Um, it's not like she was there either sent to, to kill Bond or she's working with Bond. Usually those, those are the, the two main Bond girls that we get, one or the other. She's working with Bond or she's sent to kill him. Sometimes the, the roles might be subverted a little bit in that we think that she's there to help him, but in fact, she's actually there to kill him or vice versa. We think that um, she's there to kill him when we actually, in actual reality, she's actually ends up helping him sort of thing. But yeah, uh, Honey Rider is, is really just 
you know, someone they come across on the beach when when they go to uh, Crab Island, Dr. No's uh, hidden lair island. And uh, she's just kind of all along for the ride for the rest of the way to the point where there's a few times where they're like, you really shouldn't be here. You should try to get out of here. Oh, no, I guess you're stuck with us now because, you know, they're going to kill you otherwise. OK, we'll try to protect you. OK, we're going to get you out of here as soon as we can. All that sort of stuff where they, they actually try to you know, make it as clear as possible that this woman has no place of being in the middle of this very dangerous mission that's going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. She's very much just, uh, like I said, she's just swept up in it. Um, mm-hmm. cause she's wrong, wrong place, wrong time. And she's sort of stuck with them. And then like every time she, she does at one point have an opportunity to go and she doesn't take it if I remember correctly. Um, but even from that point on, it's sort of too late anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's there. She's there because she's gorgeous, and uh, in that way, it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I also think it's funny how in um, Craig's Bond they recreated the bikini scene with him coming out of the water wearing very similar, uh, very small white briefs. You know, there's a really this is a totally different discussion, but there's a, a really um, interesting discussion to be had about Casino Royale where you reframe it as having as Craig being his own bond girl. Um, but that's a discussion for a different time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what, uh, what were your opinions on, uh, the Dr. No character, uh, and, and sort of the, the big evil mastermind as portrayed by Joseph Wiseman. So I think one thing that's really interesting, um, and just to, well, I mean, we should, we should definitely come around to the yellow face of it all. Um, but one thing I think that's really interesting is that most films would, and films in this franchise are definitely guilty of this too. Like we definitely normally have a really good idea who the villain is right from the get go. And in this film, you don't even meet Dr. No until the last 25 minutes. Like you hear his voice and everyone talks about him, but you don't ever see him until basically the very end. And I think that's a really interesting choice that we, he's a much more mysterious character than, any other Bond villain, I don't think. Um, or I do think. And uh, I think that, you know, again, it's, it's a white guy in yellow face, and that's a lot. It's problematic. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily... I'm in that place with this kind of movie where, you know, part of me wants to say, well, it's not fair to judge a movie that's, you know, 60 years old based on today's morals. But also, it is, and it's yellow face, and it's bad. Um, but also like in terms of the sort of like stoic calculating villain, I think that Wiseman does a really good job. (laughs) I think he's, Mm -hmm. he does a really good job of being, um, cold, cold and calculating and just, just menacing enough because he, he believes he's going to win. And so he doesn't have to be like extravagant or intimidating. He's just like, I've calculated the answer and you are going to die. And then he'll just walk out of a room. (laughs) because <laughs> he doesn't need to, he doesn't run. He never like gets angry until the very, very end because he just doesn't have to. And I think that's a really interesting choice. Yeah. They, they try to skirt the, the yellow face issue a little bit by claiming he is half German and half Japanese. Uh, so obviously that's a, a bit of an explanation of why they have a uh, white guy from Montreal playing a Asian character. But uh, yeah, it's still not great. Um, 
contextualizing it either way. Uh, but you're right uh, about what his actual performance. If you're if you're sort of you know just looking at him as a villain perspective, what he brings to the table. It's it's also of the era where. We're now at the point where every villain needs to have a, you know, uh, a backstory that we need to sympathize with. And we need to understand what their plot is. Where this is, it's just like, no, I, uh, I'm going to be rich. Uh, and neither the East nor the West wants to pay me enough for my services. So uh, I'm going to do it myself and work for a organization called Spectre. Yeah, and like, yeah, you're right. His backstory is, he gets one scene where he's like, I was the orphan... I was born to a woman in Shanghai to a German missionary, and then I joined the triads. Like, just like, yeah. and then I joined them, and I took all their money, and now I'm going to extort the West. Like, that's his whole story. And again, like, that's you know, honestly, that's but that's all you need. Like, you don't need much more than that when you're. It's fairly. He's a fairly one-dimensional character, but you don't necessarily need a villain to be as fleshed out as the protagonist. It's a choice. I think they do a pretty good job with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I guess, you know, we should obviously talk about Sean Connery and, and his performance, you know, bringing the whole franchise to life, really. You know, he, he has the, the suaveness down. He's got the the charm and, you know, a little bit of that, that brutish nature that would really become a hallmark of the character as a whole and really sort of sells just about everything. You know, he looks good in a suit. You believe him in high society. You believe that he can, you know, infiltrate areas and do a bit of the action, however limited the action sort of is. Uh, but yeah, he, he sort of does it all. And we, we understand what becomes the archetype of a James Bond character because of this performance. For sure. And I think honestly, um, I don't remember the entire list of guys you said were considered for the role, but I definitely think in whatever other universes that they didn't choose Sean Connery, I'm not sure I see the franchise being as successful because the one thing that Sean Connery is in this movie that really makes it work is that he is just effortlessly cool in every single scene. And as again, Roger Moore is, is pretty much my favorite bond but he doesn't become his own version of Bond until his third film. And Sean Connery like nails this from the first frame of the movie. Like the first time you see him, you're like, yep, that guy is James Bond. You don't even know his name at that point, but you're like, that guy's James Bond. And he is going to be a huge star based on this movie. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if they had gone with more the first time around, even again, who I love is Bond. I just don't think it would have been as successful. Um, especially because yeah. would, they would have been able would have been able to just be like, well, he's just being the saint again, you know. Like they would have, yes. it would have been easier to hand wave him away. Um, if and especially even if the film did this kind of money, I just don't think I don't think the performance would have been as iconic as Connery's is. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think the other issue was at the time um, Moore was in his early twenties, whereas Connery was thirty-one when he was cast. And I think that was, that, that's a big thing. Is like, you know, you really do age a lot from your twenties to your thirties, and and I think you you understand someone can have a bit more. Uh, world knowledge about them in that 10 year span because you really do grow up i feel like a lot more you know i i compare myself from when i was a decade ago to when i am now in my mid-30s and i've changed and, and grown so much uh so i think it's a i think it was a good 
choice that they stuck with someone that was a little bit older than than what Roger Moore was at the time. The other, you know, the main one that they all wanted was Cary Grant, who refused to sign more than a one film contract. And I think what has sort of become a hallmark with the James Bond actors and something I feel like we're going to get into in a little bit here is more often than not, they are casting an actor who has not yet completely blown up. So they can impose what the James Bond archetype is on the actor rather than the opposite way around. We're going to talk about people who who are you know heavily considered to be frontrunners for the Bond actor or may have in the past. And it's because they're famous at the time. But instead of getting James Bond, we'll be getting that actor playing James Bond. And I think that would have been the case with Cary Grant. Uh, I think you're probably right there as well. And I also think that, and to be clear, I think Cary Grant is great, um, but I think he has the wrong energy for the part. I think that what makes Connery really work is that you're you're right when you pointed out that he very much fits in in all the high society scenes, um, but you could always, and he, he also fits in in all the scenes where he's just like in a bar or with any other group of people, but you can always tell that he's a, he's a bit of a brute. Like he's a bit, he's, mm-hmm. he's dangerous. Um, you can tell that in every single scene. And I, I, I love Cary Grant. I'm not entirely sure he could carry that energy off, you know? Uh, and that's honestly the same reason why I don't think that more would necessarily work. Um, would have worked if they cast him the first time around. Because if you watch Moore's films, it's very clear in his first one that he's just playing the same character that Sean Connery was. And it doesn't, I know lots of people love Live and Let Die, but I don't think it's one of the better films. I don't think Moore comes into his own until his third film when he basically becomes a middle-aged playboy who's just like saving the world because he's bored. Um, It's a much different characterization that also works, um, but it doesn't work in the way it would have needed to for this movie. Yeah, that's that's completely fair. Uh, okay, do you have any sort of uh, last thoughts on the Doctor No film as a whole uh, before we move on? You know, having just rewatched it, um, I watched it yesterday to prepare for this, and the one thing that always strikes me is how <laughs> it's totally not the point, but like how gorgeous '60s like set and interior design is. Uh, there's so many scenes of like the interior of like casinos or there's one, I think I texted you a photo of it um, as I was watching. There's a scene where like a henchman goes into an empty room and there's this gorgeous window with like uh, that casts a circular shadow with um, a cross hatching of shadows across it. And like every scene like that is just like, you could pause it and just look at it for several minutes. Cause every single room looks amazing. Um, and I feel like we have that today, but in a different way. I feel like it really, the, I don't know whether it's the combination of set design and like film grain or what it is, but there's a, there's a look to films from this era that I absolutely adore. And this movie, Dr. No, happens to be a really good example of it. Yeah, I think it comes at a very interesting time in Hollywood where you know, a little bit before this, uh, on location filming wasn't really a thing. You know, everything was done in the back lots of, of Hollywood where they're like, all right, well, we're going to make this look like we're in Europe somewhere or we're in Asia or wherever this movie sort of takes place or a Caribbean island. We're going to, you know, somehow make LA look like that. And then it wasn't until like, you know, the, the late 50s, early 60s where 
movies started actually traveling to the locales they were going to. So I feel like it was such an exciting time for filmmakers where they're like, oh, we're going to be in Jamaica. We're going to, you know, you know, show off the real beauty of this, of this island and this country and all everything that has to offer. But they're also at the peak of making really fantastic physical sets too. They haven't gotten lazy with them like they, they eventually did in, in my estimation in the 80s. So we kind of like, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of building sets with the newness and freshness of doing on location filming and the two of them together just work really well in this film. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous film to just look at. Uh, and okay. I, I, I could just, in fact, you know, I, like I said, I texted you several scenes from this, like images of scenes from this movie just to be like, look at this, look how gorgeous this is. <laughs> so you, you know exactly how I feel about it. <laughs> very, very true. All right, then let us move on. And, uh, we're kind of talking maybe a little bit about our, our, our favorite bonds and, and stuff like that. I, I kind of feel woefully, you know, unqualified for this because for me, basically it's just, I love the Craig films because I I very much find the gadgets and all that sort of stuff very silly and ridiculous and it got so over the top and you know there's a host of other problematic aspects that the James Bond franchise eventually went through um and I liked how when they did Casino Royale, they're like, all right, we're going to strip everything back. We have to compete with the Jason Bourne franchise with this really gritty realism, handheld camera, shaky cam. You know, uh, you actually have to feel the the physical fights where you feel the blows and all that sort of stuff. And so because of that, I love the Daniel Craig movies. Obviously, Quantum of Solace Inspector really falls short, but you know, the 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 trio of Casino Royale, Skyfall, and No Time to Die are, in my estimation, you know, the 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 three best James Bond movies. I mean, that's a fair take. There's there's definitely a conversation where uh Craig is just the best Bond for a lot of reasons. Um and I think it has to do with the fact that most of the films, uh, or at the very least, certainly Connery through Dalton, or all, all the way through Brosnan, really, they never really talk about it. But it is he is sort of meant to be the same character, right? Like there is there's even continuity. They don't talk about it a lot, but like there's continuity from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was Lazenby, Lazenby, um, to. Roger Moore's Bond, where they, you know, at one point he um, lays flowers on his wife's grave. Like there is, there's little tidbits, right? Um, mm-hmm. But the Craig Bonds, because it's a soft reboot of the whole franchise, and because they seem to have decided that he is very specifically not the previous James Bonds, like this is like a different universe, I guess would be the way to put it. So they're able to like pick and choose the aspects that they want, and as a result. Um, you're right. Like he's the best Bond because he's the, he's his movies understand most what James Bond is meant to be, and each one is very clearly understands it. I will say though, and I know I'm in the minority on this. I think that Quantum of Solace is not a bad movie, and in fact, I think it's one of the most interesting movies in the franchise, even though it's not a great movie. Um, but I think it's mostly hamstrung by the fact that it. Uh, took place like the filming of it took place during the last writer's strike. So it was kind of hamstrung from the get go. Um, speaking of which WJ strong. Um, um, 
but I think it's actually one of the more interesting films in the in the franchise because uh, it's very much a direct sequel to and um, basically the denouement of Casino Royale. And I think it's 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 it only really works if you watch them back to back. But when you do that, you sort of see the connections in a much more meaningful way. But again, that's another conversation. I think it was, you know, pre No Time to Die, but after Spectre, I did a, a rewatch of the four Craig movies, you know, in a row, basically. And uh, and I originally remembered hating Quantum of Solace. And, and my sort of takeaway is sort of similar where, you know, I think it has a very fascinating idea behind it, but unfortunately just sort of gets bogged down on itself and ends up just kind of being boring and a little forgettable. And I say that because of that, it's regarded as one of the worst ones when in reality there are movies that have way more actual problems to them, whether they be uh, script-wise, performance-wise, a whole bunch of other stuff that might have been wrong with the movie. But instead, Quantum of Solace to me just kind of is boring and that and that's sort of why it sort of is ranked lower for me but i think people forget that there are actually some really good stuff in that including some really nice set pieces i honestly think it's one of the most interesting like yes there's some great set pieces and some great action um i think it's one of the most interesting because it's one of the only ones that's a pretty direct character study of james bond this whole movie is basically him reeling with guilt and grief over the ending of the movie before. And he doesn't like overcome Like the whole movie is just him overcoming his emotions at what's happened in the previous film. Um, like, honestly, the, the bad guys almost don't matter in that film. Um, and like I say, I don't, I don't think it's a hundred percent successful because obviously again, writer strike, they weren't able to like massage the script as they went. They weren't able to fix some of the problems that it obviously has. Um, but I still don't think it's a bad movie. Mm -hmm. Like, like I can, I can name, I can name like at least four or five movies in in this franchise that I think are much worse movies. So that's, uh, yeah. Well, you were talking about, uh, how your, your favorite bond is, is Roger Moore. I'm sort of curious about what are the hallmarks of that era of the franchise that, uh, that you regard so highly? Uh, I just, I love the characterization of Moore's Bond. Um, like I say, once you get to The Spy Who Loved Me, which is one of my favorite of the, of his films, for sure. Um, he's like, Sean Connery's a bit of a brute. And in Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun, Moore's not really able to continue that energy. But by the time you get to the spy who loved me and the, the filmmakers seem to accept that like Roger Moore is a bit older and he's a bit more suave and a little less brutish. And so they play him very differently. And he, he ends up being played again, like this like bored playboy who was just like, you know, I had a martini and I think today I'll save the world to stave off this ennui, you know, <laughs> like, um, and it, the, the movies are just, they're like, and I know people don't necessarily like this, but I also just love how goofy they are. Like the spy who loved me is a pretty great spy movie, but the next movie is Moonraker, you know, like where they clearly went shit, star Wars happened and they go into space and have a laser battle. You know, um, this franchise is, and, uh, continues to be to this day, very reactive to like current 
current trends in filmmaking, which is why the Craig ones at certain points feel like Marvel movies with their interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some, there's some pretty blatant, like again, Moonraker is probably the big, biggest example, but there's some pretty blatant like reactions to current pop culture in the, uh, the more run, especially. Um, and they all like, and they all end up being kind of ridiculous for it. And I just sort of love that energy. I just, I love that they're a little bit, they're not as self-serious as many of the, at least especially the early Connery ones. Uh, and they're not as sort of serious as the Dalton ones where they were clearly like, okay, we need to dial it back now. <laughs> um, and, uh, and again, it's just, I just love that energy. I love, I love how, how, like when we think about, when we think about Austin Powers, um, it really feels like they are making fun of the sort of like technology and villain plans from the Connery movies. But it also feels like they're directly making fun of Roger Moore's James Bond. You know, like when we think of the silliness of James Bond, you're typically thinking of the Moore ones. But I just happen to love that about them. Yeah, yeah. I I would say the franchise has always kind of had this internal battle of how do they remain cutting edge? Well, also, how do they follow trends that are also going on in you know other action movies at the time? And do you think for the most part they've you know throughout the history remain cutting edge, or do you think too often they fall into following trends? Uh, that's a good question because I think the answer is sort of both. Mm-hmm. I think if you if you watch all the films in a row, which again I watched most of them back to back to back. Uh, a couple of years ago, you can sort of, and if you do enough reading about this, the sort of what was going on in the world and in cinema at the time, you can actually sort of like sort of see that each one is kind of a reaction to how the previous one was received. Right. Like Dr. No is a fairly grounded spy story. And then from Russia with love is like, well, we have twice as much money. Let's do some gadgets and bigger set pieces. And then Goldfinger is like, Oh, you like the gadgets. Did you? And then Thunderball is like, so we went too far with the gadgets, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then You Only Live Twice is like, well, this is the last one. We're going to do all the stuff you love. And then Her Majesty's Secret Service is like, well, it's a new guy. And clearly, you guys loved the last film, but also, like, we went a little too far with the stuff again, right? So it's much mm-hmm. more dialed back. And, like, that cycle is pervasive throughout the franchise. Like, everyone is like almost an overcorrection from the previous one in terms of like what exactly they're going for in terms of style and tone. Um, And sometimes it really works and sometimes it really doesn't. But I think that because they're trying to strive, like straddle that line between current trends and cutting edge um, and, and dealing with sort of the ongoing fan reaction to the franchise. I think the answer is, again, it's kind of both because they, uh, they're always sort of going too far one way or the other. And mm-hmm. it's, it's actually, it's actually, I know asking people to watch 25 movies in a row is kind of a big ask, but it is super interesting. If you get the opportunity to, to do that, it's super interesting to watch it happen in real time. I, I think you could probably br- even break it down just sort of by actor. If you look at, if you manage to get a hold of like those box sets and stuff like that, you could probably break it down into mini marathons and space it out a little bit and be like, okay, so this is what, 
Connery brought to the table. And now let's sort of compare next what happened with, with Lazenby and then late obviously only did the one film, but Moore is a better sort of comparison because Lazenby, you were saying with, with Moore, you know, he didn't really come into his own until the third film he did. Lazenby didn't have that option. He, he was a one and done. They went back to Connery and then they're like, yikes, Connery is way too old. We need to cast someone younger. So that's why they went with Roger Moore, uh, which, you know, he also kind of had the same issue with a view to a kill where it's like, yikes, this guy is way too old. We need to get a lot younger. Let's go with Timothy Dalton sort of thing. Um, well, and also so more to more to Dalton is very much like okay, we've been a little too silly for a little too long. Let's let's make this a little serious again. Let, let's make it a little more contemporary because <laughs> a lot of Moore's films deal with like megalomaniacs, and um, in the Living Daylights, which is Dalton's first uh, first one, like he's fighting alongside the Mujahideen uh, against Soviet Russia, and in License to Kill, he's fighting against uh, drug lords in in Central America. Uh, and this is again at the height of the like war on drugs, the late eighties war on drugs. So they became a lot more like contemporary uh, of the contemporaneous of their times. Um, and again, it's you can, you're, you're not wrong that watching it like actor to actor, there's a lot of tonal shifts, but um, it is very much like film to film as well. Like, cause even, even, um, like the living daylights and license to kill Dalton only did two. Um, but even license to kill is like, Oh, here's the things you did like about the living daylights. And also here's all the stuff we didn't put in that we remember you like now. <laughs> oh. Like it's still, there's still that pattern of it. Like each one being a reaction to the last one. Yeah. It would actually be really interesting as an experience going to like, um, you know, a, a college level course or something like that, where they broke down all 25 movies of showing you not just the Bond movie itself, but, you know, what were, you know, clips from other movies or TV shows that were going on at the same time in the same genre to sort of compare and contrast. And then also talking about current news stories, because so many of these stories do revolve around you know, what is the West's big fear at the time, you know, whether, uh, you know, and Dr. No, the big one is, uh, you know, it deals with nuclear energy and, uh, and also the, the space race is starting up and all that sort of stuff. So we, we really do get what are the big fears going on at the moment. And so I'd be really curious, you know, to have like a professor break down, you know, what was going on current events wise at the time when these movies were were being made and released and, and compare and contrast to uh, other action, you know, TV shows and movies at the time. That would be a lot of fun. It I'd definitely would. That would, that would be, that would actually be an amazing film studies course. I think if yeah. no one's, yeah. if no one's already doing it, that would be an amazing film studies course because it does span such, I mean, 60 years, right? So you can sort of watch 60 years of trends just by watching these films. The single biggest gap between movies at all, I think is still, uh, I think it's still licensed to kill the golden eye. That's a six year gap. I think that's the single longest gap in all of that time. Uh, yeah, it is. It's the long, the longest gap between any two James Bond films is only six years. So it's, they're kind of like a time capsule, right? Like you can, uh-huh. each one, you can sort of see the trends that were happening in cinema at any given moment. And then it's also six years between Spectre and No Time to Die. But that also that had more to do with COVID, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, extenuating circumstances there, for sure. Because also, no, it was only supposed to be like four years, and then it got pushed like four times. 
So, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, curious. I don't know if you know this information off the top of your head. If you, if you don't, feel free to, uh, to pass. But do you have a favorite Bond theme song? Uh, I kind of love them all. <laughs> uh, hmm. You know, it, <laughs> I don't. I don't really have a favorite. It might be just Goldfinger, honestly. It's so iconic. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. Actually, you know, honestly, no. You know what it is? It's it's a tie. It's a tie between Goldeneye um, and you know my name from Casino Royale. I think those are probably oh, yeah. the two strongest. That that's funny because obviously. Um, Goldfinger is such an iconic classic, uh, and you have to kind of talk about that with the history of Bond as a whole. But uh, I would say "You Know My Name" by Chris Cornell is is up there, along with uh, "Live and Let Die" by uh, by Wings. Those are probably my two favorites. "Live and Let Die" is a, is a, a straight up banger, even if I don't like that m- movie as much as maybe other people do. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, "You Only Live Twice" is kind of a great song too, um, uh, and. Uh, Oh, there's another one. Uh, For Your Eyes Only is like maybe the most, even though that movie came out in, like it came out in 81. So it's probably the most 80s songs that ever 80s. Um, but I kind of <laughs> love it for that. Yeah. Th- if we were, you know, building this, uh, this film studies course, obviously a big part would also have to include the music at the time because so much of James Bond is tapping you know, who is the biggest singer at the time? And, and they're usually the, the person that gets to do the, the theme song. That's always such a, a curious thing of, you know, when a movie is in, in production, wondering who's going to do the theme song next. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, interestingly, I just started watching Tomorrow Never Dies because it showed up on Prime. Like it was like one of the recommendations when I finished watching Dr. No, and I hadn't watched that one in quite a while and also michelle yo is in it so i was like oh this seems like a good watch and i totally forgot that cheryl crow did a james bond song <laughs> which is probably one of the weirdest selections of uh, of artists i mean i don't know man like a view to a kill is duran duran um but that makes <laughs> thunderball sense is time, thunderball right? is thunderball is tom jones you know although i love tom jones so that's not that's not that's not knock that's just that like you know, at, right after Goldfinger, which is this amazing Shirley Bassey thing, they got Tom Jones, and that, it doesn't. It's, it's it's jarring going from one to the other. Although they are both great songs. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, one one other thing I, I kind of want to do is you know look towards the future. Uh, so not just maybe who might be the next James Bond, because as we we now know, Daniel Craig is done playing the James Bond uh, character. I, I'm not going to spoil No Time to Die if, if you haven't seen it yet, but uh, Daniel Craig has said that he will not be coming back as uh, the character, regardless of how they take the franchise. Before we get into actual actors, I'm sort of wanting to know from you, what would you want in the next installment of the franchise? Because I know there's a lot of people have a lot of opinions. Do you want it to sort of be a sort of a continuation of the Craig like character? Do you want like a throwback to maybe where we get like a uh, a period piece James Bond of basically taking place in the Connery era era? Uh, do we want a a James Bond where maybe he's young and just getting out of uh, his military service and being recruited by the government to work? So there's a whole bunch of different options that they could take this franchise. Do you have any specific ideas that you would like to see or or things that you would want them to explore? 
No. Um, but I will say I, one thing I don't want is young, just getting started James Bond. I think that Casino Royale is about as close to that as I would like to get. Um, I, I don't think we need to see him getting started. I think we all know who James Bond is. We don't need an origin story. We don't need any of that stuff. Just put him in a mission and let him do his thing. Um, and I think honestly, the type of James Bond we get will have to be sort of molded or shaped around the actor they choose to play him. Uh, and I, I, I hope they choose somebody good. There's a place in my heart that what I would love to see is just for Lashana Lynch to be the new James Bond. I think that Mm -hmm. would be great. I don't think it'll happen. I don't think we're there yet as a society. Um, but I would love for the next film to just be like her to show up and be like, hi, I'm James Bond. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm 007 now. Cause she already is 007. Like I know there's lots of a specific brand of person on the internet who doesn't like it, but I love that she's 007. And I think that they could just give her the code name and that would be fine. I think that would be great. Yeah. Actually. I, what, what I would sort of be into, and I agree, she did a fantastic job in, in, in No Time to Die. Um, Barbara Broccoli has, has mentioned already that she doesn't want Lashana Lynch to specifically become James Bond because, you know what, why don't we just make a really good uh, spy thriller with a female lead and not you know, sort of shoehorn her in and be like, well, how, how can she be James Bond? Can she be Jane Bond or whatever nonsense they would do? I would totally be cool. I would totally be cool if they did a spinoff series with her having the 007 title, but still being her character that she was in No Time to Die and existing in this, you know, MI6 James Bond world, but she does completely her own thing. In the same way that, you know, back in the day we could have gotten, you know, uh, what was uh, Sean Bean's character, 006, 004, I don't know, whatever his number was. 006, yeah. Yeah, we could have conceivably gotten a Sean Bean spinoff movie. Uh, I mean, I see where that's coming from. I just feel like it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't know how to say, I don't know how to articulate this correctly, but like, why don't we just make a new character franchise? And honestly, the reason is because like this franchise is established and it's, I think it's important that we, people can see themselves in all of these roles. And I don't think having her continue as, as James Bond is even shoehorned in because she's already 007 mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it could be a chance for them to be like, you know what? It's code name. And then they could just do that. They could be like, have her walk in and be like, um, Hi, I'm James Bond. And then new M being like, how are you adjusting to the code name? And she'll be like, fine. And then they're done. That's all they have to do. And then just make a movie with Lashana Lynch. Because I think she's great. She has exactly the right physicality. She's exactly cool enough. She's exactly, she has that like dangerous energy in her performance. I think everything about her is basically perfectly cast. And I think we're only not going to do it. We're only not going to see it because she's a black woman. Uh-huh. And 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 I say that deliberately because I feel like if she was a white woman, there'd be a much greater chance. And I know that that's terrible, uh, but I, I legitimately think that if if it was a white actress, she would have a much better chance of that happening. But you know, the, the world we live in is the world we live in. I I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, I I know everyone has an opinion on James Bond, and in, including you know women that are fans of the franchise. 
Uh, I've talked to some of them would love the idea of it's just a code name. I know that's not like, I know that's a a theory that people have posted out there before in in the world of like, oh, this is, you know, doesn't matter who plays it. It's just a code name sort of thing. Uh, And then I've also talked to, to women who would be like, yeah, but you know, just create an original character or just have a, be herself. It doesn't have to be James Bond sort of thing. Um, so I, I definitely, you know, it's one of those things where everyone has an opinion on James Bond and uh, and you can't tell anyone that they're wrong because they're just going to argue with you and not not want to have a discussion yeah. to begin with. <laughs> I would say at the very least, it would be nice if at any point in this franchise, uh, a woman character other than M or Money Punny lasted for more than one film. <laughs> so maybe if we can at least get her back in the next film, that would be good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the closest we got was Leia Sado and the last couple of uh, James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even even her role was... Uh, I really liked that a lot of people didn't. Uh, I mean, she's a bit... She's Yeah, she's a bit damselly, I guess. I don't mind it. I don't mind... I don't have strong feelings about it. Um, <laughs> although I did, I did really love No Time to Die. I thought it was a very good movie, a very good ending to his... Okay. Craig's turn. Um... But uh, yeah, anyway, the other thing is that like, if they choose a new actor, I think almost anyone you can think of is sort of already too famous. You need someone who has the chops, who's proven themselves in some other movies. Uh, but most of the people who people whose names throw around, I think, are already too famous. Like, there's a a big contingent who are like Idris Elba, but he's too old and too famous. Uh, and even like uh, Dev Patel, probably too famous. Tom Hiddleston, I think, would legitimately be great probably too famous at this point um you need someone much more um someone who this is going to be their big break not who's already had it if that makes sense yeah you look at you know daniel craig's career right before james bond uh he was in munich the steven spielberg film and the the reason why he was cast was the movie lair cake where he is absolutely excellent and basically playing james bond uh yeah that's a great movie Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if they retcon Lair Cake to be a prequel to Casino Royale, there would be you know no other than the fact that I believe he dies at the end of Lair Cake. If I'm if I'm not forgetting, uh, uh, spoilers. But yeah, he's he's definitely shot. Yeah, and then it's yeah. left ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, fantastic movie though great action scenes so he had he had done a few things that were notable but like not super well known you know he he had a, a good part in road to perdition a movie i absolutely adore that for some reason a lot of people don't like uh he was the villain in uh the the first tomb raider movie uh so you know he he had some some decent parts totally forgot about that but he was the bad guy yeah. in tomb raider yeah wow um so <laughs> He had some, he had some notable parts, but you're right. He he wasn't as well known. I I remember when he was cast, despite the fact that I'd seen you know Tomb Raider when it came out, and uh, I'd seen Munich when it came out. When he was announced as the actor to play James Bond in Casino Royale, I was like, "Who is this guy?" And I just remember, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest controversy was that he had blonde hair, which is very laughable by today's standards. I mean, yeah, I think people have a pretty specific idea of what James Bond is meant to look like. And every single James Bond has looked like that. So until Craig, so I, yeah, we're, we're silly people. Like everyone, people are silly. So, yeah. 
But uh, um, you throw out a couple names. Uh, the, the big one I think that most people really wanted for the longest time was Idris Elba. And as great as I think he would be, he's unfortunately just too old. You know, he, he has every aspect that you would want in a James Bond character. He's cool. He's intimidating. He's got the physical stature. He can, you know, pull off the high class society stuff and also the rough and tumble aspect. Idris Elba can do anything. But, you know, he's but already he's 50. 50 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're expecting at least four or five movies. And the fact that they're not churning out these movies every other year, you're at least looking at, you know, 12 to 15 years. Are we really wanting to see 65 year old Idris Elba playing James Bond? Obviously, today, we've got movies like Liam Neeson being an action star and stuff like that, that in my opinion, is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I know on a recent episode you were you were talking about uh, Taken Three and explaining to to Simon the ridiculous editing to make um, Liam Neeson look athletic and fit. But uh, he's continued to do action oh, movies since then. <laughs> Still ridiculous every single time. Yeah, you're not wrong, and I think um, I think part of that too is just the choices he's making in terms of films that he's taking. He's become a little bit typecast for it, but ultimately what you, what you need for James Bond at this point is an actor or actress uh, who's in their like early or mid thirties, who's done enough good work to prove they can really act, but who isn't super famous yet. So, yeah. you know, again, so that basically eliminates the Henry Cavill, the Tom Hardy's, the Idris Elba's of the world. Um, it probably eliminates people who are like Aaron Taylor Johnson is probably a little too famous. Who I think would actually, yeah. probably, if he wasn't as famous as he is, he would probably be one of the best candidates in my opinion. Oh, he'd be wonderful. Um, what I think is interesting is I think it does include though people like, um, I think Jack Loudon would be a really great James Bond. Uh, Jack Loudon who's on, he's on slow horses on Apple TV right now, but he was also in, um, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk as one of the fighter pilots. Um, oh, right. Uh, or I, you know, who I legitimately think would, if I had to pick someone today, I think I would probably pick Reggae, Reggae John Page, who's exactly in that spot that I'm talking about, right? Like he's about, I think he's 35. He was on Bridgerton. He's just been in Dungeons and Dragons and he kind of steals that movie. And so he's like, he's famous, but he's not super famous and he's a great actor and he's in the right age group. And that's, that is sort of what you want. You want someone who's old enough. You can believe they have enough experience to be James Bond, but young enough that they can carry the franchise for three to five films. So you need someone who's basically mm-hmm. 35. <laughs> um, uh, so just eliminate it. Every time you see a list, just look at, are they 35? No. Well, then they're out of contention. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. For for me, my ideal Bond. I really, you know, I didn't think about Paige until I saw this list came up, and I just watched uh, Dungeons and Dragons as well. And uh, he's fantastic in that. I haven't seen Bridgerton, so I can't really talk about that aspect of his what he can do. But yeah, he would be very interesting. But for me, the person that I would be single most putting all my chips behind would be Henry Golding. I think uh, actually, you know, that would be probably my second choice. I think Henry Golden would be Golding would be an excellent choice, um, and I think it would be maybe even a little more timely than um, than Regan Page. As as in, I think it would be given how much like 
Sinophobia has been in James Bond films. <laughs> I think it would be a very interesting and apt choice to choose uh, a an actor of Asian descent. Yeah, I believe he is Malaysian, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he yeah, he's Malaysian, Malaysian British. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, most people probably know him from Crazy Rich Asians, which he he is very good in that. But I don't think you know if we're talking about also the fame level. You know, he's not the centerpiece of that movie. For me, it was when I saw him in The Gentleman, the uh, the Guy Ritchie movie, where he's he's playing a bad guy. Well, they're all kind of bad guys in that movie, just varying degrees of, of badness. Um, that you really can kind of see the like he'll he'll do whatever it takes to sort of get the job done aspect that I that we kind of saw a bit with Daniel Craig, but would be a very interesting you know twist on the character. And, and the fact that we could see, we saw him so charming in, in Crazy Rich Asians that he he can pull off, you know, basically every facet that you would want from the Bond character. That that's why he would be my number one choice. Yeah, he's also good in A Simple Favor. Um, uh, I know that Snake Eyes was a big bomb, but I don't think that's a problem. Uh, uh, and he's going to be in a movie. On the- yeah, I mean that's it's a bad movie problem. Um, He's also going to be in the old guard too coming up. So that'll be a good chance for people to see his sort of uh, acting chops. I think that's next year or the year after. Um, Interesting. So yeah, I think he's a great choice. I think if we're going to boil it down to like, I think that either one of those would be a fantastic choice. Uh-huh. And like, and then Andy's, Andy's 36. So perfect. He's 36. So it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, they'd have to basically start right away. Uh, are you of the mind that the actor must be from the British Isles? Is that the one sort of rule that has to be followed? Nah, I don't think so. No? Although I do think they have to be from the Commonwealth. Uh, and the reason I say that is that On Her Majesty's Secret Service is probably one of my favorite James Bond films, and he's an Aussie. So. Yes. Yeah, that is, that is true. Lesenby is is Australian. So I, I don't I don't think you need to be I don't think you need to be British, but I do think you need to have an accent. <laughs> yes. So you wouldn't want a Canadian then, because that would technically be a part of the British Empire, so to speak. Uh I can't I can't really think of a Canadian actor off the top of my head who I would like to see in the role who isn't already again already too famous. Famous, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be opposed. I think I don't. So I think (laughs) if we're going to talk about where James Bond is from, I think that I think the Commonwealth is probably the right thing. Obviously, I don't think you could be like French, and I also just don't Mm -hmm. think you can be American. Um, although they did, they did try that at one point, they nearly cast, um, James Brolin as James Bond at one point, which is just super. Really? You can find screen. You can find screen tests of that online. Actually, it's super interesting. Um, but I, I think again, I think that like from the Commonwealth for me is the is the sort of deciding factor. And again, have to be able to do the accent. Uh, and I think you know, so anywhere from like Australia, Canada is probably fine. Um, Again, just like not American and not French and not Russian. <laughs> yeah. 
That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do you have any parting thoughts on either, you know, where the franchise is going, your overall thoughts that you kind of want to hit on before we finish off today? I mean, honestly, just that the franchise, because, I mean, the movie's two years old now, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say that No Time to Die has a, a bit of finality to the way that it ends. And that's never really happened in a James Bond film before. And I know that was somewhat controversial, but I think it's actually maybe the most exciting time for James Bond because it means they can do whatever they want. And I think that, I think that that's very exciting for a franchise so long lived that they have a world of possibility that they've maybe never had before. And I, I look forward to seeing what they do with it. I, and it, uh, and you know, it's a long enough franchise that even if the next one is bad, there'll be another one. So there's no reason not to be optimistic. I, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds as well because you know, up until Daniel Craig, for the most part, every movie was completely standalone from even within the same actor. It wasn't until uh, Daniel Craig where. We've got uh, Quantum of Solace being a direct sequel to Casino Royale and then No Time to Die being a direct sequel to Spectre. Um, that there is a, the real continuation. And really the franchise as a whole kind of is, is one continuous you know, storyline per se. Would you prefer if they didn't went back to more standalone films or do you like, it's kind of the trend today where everything is sort of interconnected and, and the story always continues. I don't have strong feelings about it, to be honest. I just hope whatever they do, whatever they do, I just hope they focus on making each individual film good. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said about the Marvel influence on the current filmmaking landscape and everything trying to be a, a connected universe and whether they're succeeding or failing at that. But I think the thing that we, that filmmakers and or studios at least lose sight of, is that the Marvel model is very financially successful. Like, I'm not sure that train's ever stopping either at this point, even though it's only 15 years old. But I think what they lose sight of is the fact, and to be clear, they're not always successful, but they do always try to focus on making each individual entry in the franchise good. That seems to be their first concern, is that the story we're telling is good. And I feel like as long as they do that... And as long as they focus on making the character someone we can enjoy on screen, like, you know, well-performed and well-written, then I don't think it'll matter what they decide to do. Uh, As long as they do those two things, we'll be fine. That sounds so novel, doesn't it? Just make the movie good? Yeah. I mean... (laughs) I mean, yeah, it does. It's sad that it does, but I mean, look at all the franchises that have tried to be interconnected without trying to be good first, right? Like, there's a bunch of them by the wayside now, right? Like, remember mm-hmm. remember the Dark Universe? <laughs> you yeah. know, the D- DC's in the midst of a complete reset because they messed it up so bad. Or like right? the third time. Um, right. So, I think, again, as long as they, if they focus on making each individual film the best film it can be. And again, they're not always going to be successful. Marvel's not even always successful, but as long as they focus on that and the connective stuff comes as a secondary concern, we'll be fine. But if they also decide to go back to just purely episodic with no connection, I'd be fine with that too. I just, I just want them to make fun movies. If anything, after Craig, 
who is a much more serious Bond. Maybe what I would like to see is him going back to being a little bit silly. That's what I'll say. <laughs> I want him to go. I want yeah. some more back. I want some Roger Moore era energy back. Um, so maybe they should just go watch The Spy Who Loved Me and For Your Eyes Only um, and uh, try and recapture some of that energy. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I, I totally, you know, the last thing I'm going to say here is, is I would be fine if they decide to make it more of a period piece and to bring back the silliness that I think that would be a very uh, easy way to do it is if, you know, we're, we're going to bring it back to uh, the swing in sixties and we're going to have a little bit of fun here and, and, you know, make it a little silly and goofy and, and all that sort of stuff. I'd be, I definitely be okay with that. Yeah. You know, honestly, I'm going to disagree with you there. I think that one of James Bond's great strength is something that we talked about just a few minutes ago in that each one is a reflection of its current time. So I think making any kind of like period set piece or prequel type thing might actually be a mistake. I think they just need to make a good movie set in the now in a heightened version of the now. Um, and however they want to execute that will be fine. But I, I actually don't think going back to the sixties would be a good idea. That's what, that's what parodies will do. And there's room for that too. So fair enough. I, I think this was a excellent conversation we had celebrating the 60th anniversary of, of Dr. No Matthew. I want to thank you so much for, for coming on today and, and having this great discussion with me. Uh, where can people find you and what have you been working on? So you can find me in a couple of places now, actually. Um, my writing and podcasting portfolio is online at stretched.ca, as in like I stretched it out, stretched.ca. You can find uh, links to most of my writing. I'm still migrating over links from some of my older stuff to that. But uh, you can find reviews that I'm writing for exclaim.ca and That Shelf and all of our podcast episodes at Awesome Friday. Uh, and you can find Awesome Friday at Awesome Friday's DA or search for the Awesome Friday podcast on your podcasting platform of choice if you'd like to hear me talk about new movies. Uh, and you can find me on the socials. I am everywhere that matters. I am at SmatthewAF. Nice. Well, I will look link to your new website in the show notes, and I'm definitely going to have to check this out. I pulled it up here, and it looks awesome uh, what you have done so far. So uh, congratulations on, on the new site there. Thanks. Yeah, it's not... Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's just a really nice WordPress profile or uh, uh, theme that I tweaked a little bit. Um, but, it, you know, I only need it to be – it's just a portfolio site. So, But, you know, now that I'm writing in more than – now that I'm writing in many places, it's, it's I think, important. Yeah, I, I agree. This has been a That Shelf podcast. Visit thatshelf.com for more great film discourse. You can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. What is your favorite James Bond film? Do you have any thoughts of who the next James Bond actor should be? All that great stuff that we discussed today, let us know. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you really like the show, Consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.